Episode 12, The Last Hurrah. Living on the parking lot at the old Holy Name Rectory was not fun. However, Mother did say a huge bonus was that she did not have to make any more lunches. When we were at St. Catherine's on the east side of Detroit, everybody came home for lunch and then went back to school, giving Mother not much of a break before everyone returning from school and getting ready to feed dinner for 19. Holy Name School was a huge relief for our mother. Moving from the east side of Detroit to Birmingham was obviously a very stressful time. Our brother Paul had graduated from Austin High School run by the Augustinians, where most of the students were upper middle class. The only reason the school accepted an inner city boy like our brother Paul was he had such a good second year record in the seminary. Mother said that James Patrick and Brian were really good sports, leaving their beloved St. Catharines and attending Shrine High School. Brian played basketball. James P. was extremely popular and was immediately cast in a musical. Our sister Kathy was commuting to Immaculata High School in Detroit. The twins, Teresa and Patrick, were at home. Edward, William, Anne, Patricia, Claire, and Christopher attended Holy Name School, even though its enrollment was really high at the time. Mother said that Anne and Patricia had a bit of a hard time adjusting. She suspected it was because some of the Birmingham snobs. Our sister Claire seemed to rise above class distinction. Christopher was very serious and a very good student. When Kevin started kindergarten, Mother said she and Margaret, our number one, worked on making him look less frail, less wistful-looking. His kindergarten class wrote a cookbook, which, lo and behold, included a recipe for French toast for 19 people. <sighs> our grandparents arrived for Thanksgiving, and our dining room table extended to 12 feet and sat 17 plus the high chairs and the bassinets. Our Nana O'Brien commented that our father looked weary. Weary? <laughs> the men's choir, the women's choir, the boys' choir, rehearsals, private lessons, practicing, keeping up with the liturgies, four daily masses, funerals, weddings, food shopping, etc., etc., etc. Weary described our father perfectly. Mother confessed to us that when she went to confession to Monsignor Paddock, <laughs> she admitted that she used God's name in vain about 60 times a day. Monsignor Paddock kept saying, Oh my, oh my, oh my. <laughs> Mother never did go back to confession to him. Although we were right on the parking lot, living in an old rectory with very limited space, Mother said things began to become a bit more manageable. She loved to walk uptown with Patrick and Teresa to window shop, and one bonus at the rectory was the laundry was on the first floor, which, as you can imagine, was a huge help. Also, Mother finally learned to drive and could get out a bit. 
One evening at the old rectory, there was an incident. Teresa had locked herself in the bathroom. Mother called unto Teresa, Honey, honey, do you see the knob? All the while, mother's twisting and turning the knob from the outside. Honey, do you see the button on the door? Honey? Teresa was two years old and finally said, Oh, shut up, honey. <laughs> that did it. They had to call the fire department and rescue her. Teresa was very calm, quiet, and completely unruffled by the ordeal. Wow. Suddenly, it was time for our Margaret, number one, to graduate from Marygrove College. Our Uncle Jim, Monsignor Callahan, also known as UJ, came in from New York for the big event. Margaret had her degree and a nice boyfriend, Michael Guzicki, who was in dental school. In Margaret's junior year, Margaret and Mike had implored with our parents for permission to get married. But our parents pleaded with them to just hang in there until Margaret graduated. And God bless them, they did. It was time to get out of the rectory. The people who had bought Iroquois on a land contract were MIA paying their monthly installments. There were a few homes that came up for sale, but one does need money to buy a home. That march was as ugly as a march can be. Lent was in progress. One day, Mother received a call from a realtor who said there was a house for sale with nine bedrooms, and she thought it would be perfect for our family, and she really wanted our parents to see it. Well, she drove our parents on a street they didn't even know existed, Manor Road. As Mother recalled, the house they came up to was sort of a huge, ugly, yellow home set up on a hill. They went into the kitchen, which had cheap gray tiles, many of them missing. But there was a lovely bay window in the breakfast room, a spacious dining room overlooking a sloping lawn. The room to the left of the dining room was a bright sunroom, and to the right of the dining room was a 35-foot living room. The floor was covered with thick, dirty, pink embossed carpet that Mother suspected was the original when the Tudor-style home was built in 1926. Off of the living room was a beautiful paneled library with many shelves for books and two windows facing the fenced-in yard that was centered by a huge elm tree. About a third of an acre of land laid behind that. Four windows looked down a hill, past other homes, to the Rouge River. Mother said, looking out the windows, she had a very strange feeling of deja vu. She felt that she had somehow had been there before. Well, there were six bedrooms on the second floor and three bedrooms on the third floor. Our parents returned home, never even discussing the possibility of making an offer, as it wasn't even a remote possibility with their limited means. The realtor was relentless, calling Mother, praising the home, saying it was perfect for 19 people. Finally, the exasperated realtor called and inquired, isn't there someone you know who could loan you $6,000 for a down payment? Well, Mother searched and searched her mind for someone who had real money, Mother said some prayers, and she believes the Holy Spirit told her to call a dear priest friend, 
Father Kowalski. Father Kowalski belonged to the Birmingham Country Club, and he knew a lot of successful executives. Maybe, just maybe, he might know of someone with means? It took a while for our mother to get the courage up to call him. When Father Kowalski answered, she told him the situation and asked if he knew of anyone dumb enough to loan $6,000 to buy a home. Father said, I'll look into it for you. Mother hung up, sat in a chair, amazed at the nerve she had of even calling him. About 15 minutes later, the phone rang. It was Father Kowalski. I found someone, he said, in 15 minutes. Wow, it was only 15 minutes, my mother said. Yes, Father Kowalski said, I found someone dumb enough to lend you the money. Me. It took a while for it to sink in. Our father was more than surprised when Mother told him the good news. So our father got busy and evicted the people who were not paying for Iroquois. Mother always said, how amazing that life can change in 15 minutes. So our family had another big move to go through, but it was to our beloved 86 Manor Road. A year later, our precious, beautiful baby sister, Bridget Louise, number 18, not just a number, was born on April 7, 1960. She looked just like our Nana O'Brien, mother's mother. It was truly uncanny that the 18th child, the 8th daughter, whom our parents called the last hurrah, looked so much like Nana. The following is a note our sister Margaret, number one, wrote to our mother in the hospital right after Bridget was born. Hooray for mother. I am so happy and relieved. I can just imagine how you feel. God is sure good to us, and all our prayers were answered. Everyone's fine here. Well, at least as well as can be expected without you. The phone rang all day. How about that baby? Some girl, 20 inches long. She's going to be another good one like Patricia if she was thoughtful enough to come the way she did and the same size. I did call Father Kay, and he proceeded to talk, talk, talk. And he called back, and they have our name at Birmingham Country Club, and they'll take on all 200 or whatever we want. More of that later. Please rest, Mother. I'm so proud of you. Love, Margaret. P.S. I love the name Bridget Callahan. In this letter, Margaret is talking about arranging for her wedding reception. Margaret was married four months after Bridget was born on August 4, 1960, at Holy Name Church. I can only imagine our parents' thoughts and feelings. Within four months, bringing their 18th child home into the family nest and their firstborn leaving the family nest. You know, Bridget Louise is the only sibling I remember being born. She was absolutely adorable and so much fun. She may have been the baby of the family, but she has always been a wise old soul to me. She has a few nicknames. Bird, Birdie, Tweeter, Tweet. 
But my favorite is the last hurrah, because it is so fitting as Bridget Louise, number 18, has always been such a joy. Please listen to a story written by Jane, our mother's dear childhood friend. Jane, now Sister Mary Doris, wrote a story that was featured in A Parish Visitor, published in Monroe, New York. This is where Sister Mary Doris was a member of the Parish Visitors of Immaculate Mary Community. Mary O'Brien, my sweet Colleen, she was made for love. We all love to hear Mary sing it, including our kindergarten sister. But even sister could not guess that little Mary was created for a great human love indelibly sealed with the divine. Mary was smiling from the kindergarten door the day I arrived with my hand in my father's. She had no brothers or sisters, so that we became like sisters. Mary was my model. My hair had to be curled when hers was, never when hers was straight. My mother could even use my admiration for Mary as a disciplinary measure. Mary would never do that. That was all I needed. The only limits on my imitation were placed there by my mother's good judgment. But it was not only fun and school that we shared, but our First Holy Communion and then Confirmation, all the processions in honor of the Blessed Sacrament and our Blessed Mother. Which reminds me that the May crowning put another limit on my imitation. Only a girl named Mary could do it. So... I had to be content. In fact, I think that it was because we both wanted to imitate Mary, our Blessed Mother, that the two of us went through the years hand in hand with never a flaw in our friendship. By the time we reached our teens, the imitation was waning. I wanted to be a sister, and Mary had two dreams, to have children and to sing. God has given each of us her heart's desire. At 16, Mary met John, an accomplished organist. They sang to each other, for each other, and then together. Their duet has now become a chorus which will sing in eternity before the very throne of God. Please listen to our sister, Bridget Louise, the baby, read an article entitled, Mother, Father, and 18 Callahans, written by our parents, Mary and Jack Callahan, that was published in The Parish Visitor. They wrote this a few months after our sister was born. Included in the article is a photo. Under the photo is the inscription, Bridget Louise becomes a member of Christ's mystical body when her uncle, Father Patrick, O.F.M., administers baptism. Our parents were unaware at the time that our Bridget Louise would become seriously ill with spinal meningitis, a truly treacherous time for our family. Thank you, God, for so many prayer warriors storming the heavens, Dr. Donnelly, and a brand new antibiotic that our baby sister fully recovered. On April 7, 1960, Bridget Louise was born. 
Now for a beautiful little girl to come into the world and to have her parents choose to call her Bridget Louise is not altogether noteworthy. Probably there have been other Mr. and Mrs. Callahan's who have gazed lovingly at their new baby and said, let's call her Bridget. But Bridget Louise does have a claim to fame nonetheless. Our claim is this. Before she arrived, this Mr. and Mrs. Callahan looked lovingly at their other babies and each time said, let's call her or him, Margaret, John, Paul, Jim, Brian, Kathy, Ed, Bill, Anne, Patricia, Claire, Chris, Kevin, Mary, Joseph, Teresa, and Patrick. For Bridget is our 18th living child. She has 10 brothers and seven sisters who love her very much. She is the first they seek in the morning and the last they gaze on at night. She is happy and healthy as a baby should be. Our family is joyful for having its large population. We have a sense of being a small community in ourselves. Even if we sometimes disagree at home, we always present a united front to the world. We all have different personalities, and therefore, we learn quickly to adjust to our own individuality in order to respect each other. The older children help care for the little ones and help mother with her many chores. They are obviously happier for having contributed to the welfare of the family and for knowing they are really needed. Children in a large family learn early that material things are not everything. They have fun going through boxes of clothes sent to us by friends. If the boy up the street has a new bicycle, they are glad for him. But a second-hand one, or none at all, is met with quiet resignation. Of course, there's always a party. There are 20 birthdays to be celebrated. Our Saints' Days, Blessed Mother's Birthday, Holy Thursday's Paschal Dinner, Easter, and beautiful Christmas, with the awe of the Christ child's birth in every nook and corner of our home. One of the reasons these parties have an especially wonderful spirit is the large number attending. At our religious celebrations, there is a feeling of Christ's nearness. When one or two are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. A friend of mine who has only 10 children was hurrying around her home on Holy Thursday evening. She was roasting the lamb, sending for unleavened bread, which she had forgotten to order, setting the table as lovely as she could, and in the meantime, scrubbing everyone up in preparation for Mass. It was all very exciting, especially for the young children. So that one little tyke pulled on his mother's skirt and said, Mummy, Mummy, is this really our last supper? A large family, as full of graces as it is with children, there is always a sacrament close at hand. This year we had two confirmed, one who received First Holy Communion, and one baptized, with two of the older children acting as godparents. And our oldest daughter, Margaret, was married, so that the sacrament of matrimony was ours too. We hope that all of our children will be well educated. With scholarships, government loans, and various grants, a student with a desire can attain a college degree. With their diplomas, they should be better Christians and better mothers and fathers themselves. A family like ours has a host of friends, individually and collectively. This is one of our great blessings. Many people have a real Christian interest in us. 
whether they are helping find jobs for the older ones or sending clothes for the younger ones, assisting during sickness or being near in case of trouble, we thank God for loyal friends. But what of the parents in all this large family business? A mother and father of a large family find it impossible to do much arguing. Our voices, we find, aren't strong enough to carry over the noisy din. Nor is money a point of contention. What money? Of course, there are drawbacks in mothering and fathering a big brood. For instance, what bed is big enough to harbor everyone as they troop in to seek mom and dad at midnight for protection from a thunderstorm? Or what lap could hold five preschoolers for a reading of Peter Rabbit? There has been much talk lately about the frightful situation of large families and what it is to be done about it. We have even had to face the effect of this talk on our own children. One of our boys remarked that he was not going to have a large family. We asked him how many he thought he would have, and he replied, just 12. Mother and father sit far from each other at the dinner table, only because there are so many children between them. But as their glances meet, they say, here is the fruit of our love, the only thing that will ever be between us. It seems to me that some people today are very conceited. They think the present and the future are entirely in their hands and that the burden is on them alone. They forget that God will not be outdone in generosity. These are not empty words to us. They are a living reality. It occurred to us the other day that we have a great chance for heaven. With all our children praying for us when we go home to God, how can we lose our greatest goal? Here are some memories that Bridget has of our grandparents and of Oswego. Well, Birdie, you're number 18, not just a number, the baby, our little tweeter. So I'm curious if you have any memories of Nana Callahan. I don't have many. I just remember her being frail, uh, always dressed nice, old, not very happy, kind of angry, and her not liking any cats or kicking them out the door, <laughs> mostly. Yeah. That's all I remember of her. Now, what is your uh, favorite story or memory of Nana and Big Paul? Uh, Nana um, was very quiet and shy to me, just going out there most summers of my life young life, Big Paul sitting on the side porch with a cigar, sitting in the dining room for dinner. And mostly I remember Nana's funeral uh, because it was the first dead body I ever saw, wow. let alone in the house. And I remember relatives um, coming into the house and seeing me and falling apart because they said how much I looked like her. And at 16, I think I was 16, it was, or 13, it was upsetting to me. But Big Paul, of course, was always bigger than life. Story on Big Paul, he was sick and in the hospital, and it was late December, early January, and someone from a swiggle called mom and said, you need to get to town. And she was lalligating. And dad said, would you go with her? And I said, okay. So we flew to Oswego, and I'd always heard of the um, horrific winters there, and it was. The snow was up easily to the second story of the houses covering the windows. Somebody picked us up, I think Teddy, and 
from the airport with chains on his tires. I'd never seen that. We settled in and we walked to the hospital. And I had a scarf that I wrapped around my waist and tied it. And mother held on to the back of it. I walked in front of her all the way to the hospital. It was unbelievably snowy. And Big Paul asked me, I said, what can I get for you? He said, watermelon. Of course, in today's day and age, I would have been able to do that for him. But back then, there was no watermelon in, the, in January in a suit of New York. I felt bad. And I got back on the airplane the next day. And while I was in flight, he passed away. To then get into a car and drive to Oswego for his funeral. Did you leave mom there? Yes. Oh, you did. Okay. I she was there by herself. <clears throat> I spent two days with her, got her settled. And because I think she knew, you know, this was going to happen and she didn't want to do it. Who does? Um, so, yes, I left her there, flew back, and had to drive back in horrific weather, uh, but fun. Claire, Kevin, there are a few of us in a car, and I can't believe we drove all the way to Oswego in a blizzard. But we made it, and it was a beautiful funeral. It really was. Mm-hmm. And Teddy. Uh, I loved, I always felt he was the fun version of dad, if that sounds right. That's a great way to put it, Bridget. He, yeah. His mannerisms were so like dad, even the way he scratched his arm. And Aunt Margaret and Anne and uh, Meg spending summers there, uh, getting so close to them. And Aunt Margaret was precious. And I, she always was very affectionate with me. I think um, I reminded her a lot of her daughter who passed. We were roughly the same age. Yeah, Beth. Yeah, and um, I just loved them, and I loved going to their house. Um, not that Nan and Big Boss wasn't fun. Teddy was just fun, and Aunt Margaret. They were always upbeat, and there was always kids in the house, and, you know, it was fun. I have beautiful memories of the two of them, for sure. Now, let's listen to Bridget Louise and her memories of Manor Road and of our family. I know our older siblings have shared that mom and dad were such fierce disciplinarians when they were growing up and that they mellowed. But how did you feel as a little girl? Because I honestly was afraid of mom and dad. Yeah, more mom than dad, because dad, if he was home, he would be reading or out in the yard working. Not that he didn't care, but it wasn't... Mother was the one that was always aiming the best she could. I mean, at that point, you know, she was 50, 42 when she had me. And then there were Trish, Jimmy, and Johnny, and then there were always a grandparent or an uncle in the house. I mean, she had so many to take care of, let alone working herself. So frankly, I, as far as discipline, there was none, as far as I'm concerned, for me. Until later, when it was kind of too late, Dad would try and ground me. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, you know? You know, I'm waitressing to 2 in the morning, and I get in trouble for being out late and grounding me. I was like, where is this coming from? But he, he I think he was catching on and, and felt like he had to do something. But um, never was really afraid of him. I, I have to say, one memory, I know he had the shillelagh and used it on the older people, but I got it once on the back of my legs and it was for Patrick's something, shenanigans. But other than that, it was silent abuse, no talking. You know, that was the disciplinary, you know, if mom was or dad were mad at you, they just detected. 
uh, Dad did for sure mellow over the years. And she finally would settle down. He was a magic charm with the babies. His work ethic was unbelievable, obviously. And what he expected of us, you know, being in the choir, he had to, if you were living home, whether you could sing or not, you were in that choir. But those are such great memories. <laughs> oh, we did have fun, Bridget. Oh Honest God. to God. You, we'd usually sit next to you, me, yeah. and Margaret, and we'd laugh ourselves sick. And I'd get the Hogan look from Dad. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, I'd be talking too much. Yeah, and saying, and we get the, I've never laughed so hard in my life trying to control it, you know, is in choir. Hmm. Um, at those days, the choir was facing away from the congregation, so they couldn't see a lot. They could see some, but not a lot. Had a lot of, that was wonderful, wonderful memories, as painful as it was sometimes. The rehearsals, you know, getting there early. Dad's wicked-ass coffee. Um, <laughs> so strong. Should it be called wicked-ass? Oh, God. That's it was like mud. Mud. Well, I can, it makes my hair stand. He's <laughs> thinking about it right now, and I love the coffee. But would I, would I kill for a cup today with him? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember taking naps as a child. And I think because of that, I still take my naps um, laying on their bed on Manor Road. And he'd have his shoes on. <laughs> and uh, you try and slip away and he'd squeeze your hand really tight. Mm -hmm. But for 30 minutes, you weren't going anywhere. So, and it wasn't about talking. There was no talking. It was close your eyes for 30 minutes. And it was really healthy. And I think that's maybe why he lived so long, too. Well, and he walked a lot, too, but... His very quick walk, always walking fast, his little feet, his quick feet on the puddles at church, uh, his beautiful smile. What's your uh, favorite mes uh, memory of Christmas or story that you... I just remember coming down... And steps? Just, yeah, coming down those steps. And the tree, of course the tree, Christmas. But as a child, I just remember coming down and going, <gasps> you know, there was just... I don't know how she did it wrecked all of it, hit all of it, I, you know, paid for all of it. I remember him being wonderful. I don't remember saying, oh, I wish I'd gotten this or that. Yeah. Never once. Same here. Just don't. I was just, I guess maybe we were just grateful we got anything, but it was, they were always magical. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, of course, the big old turkeys, two turkeys for years. That was a lot of work. In a brown paper bag. Always, which I still do. Parades. Going down the parades, again, awesome memories. Those are really fun times. And Easter, of course, it was big. Easter week is huge. Dad and mom both being fried. Mm -hmm. All of us, again. Uh, Lent, um, salmon patties. Oof. We had to eat that every Friday. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> Fourth of July, of course, the best. Going downtown for the... Um, Fireworks. Fireworks was magnificent. Sitting out on the grass and watching them and watermelon and all the treats that go along with it. I never felt at fault ever that I, uh, mom and dad had 18 kids. Uh, his mother always said it wasn't that she loved children, she loved her husband. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's on that. I had a party. Not you, Bridget. At Monroe. <laughs> My 18th birthday, and the band played, um, Ashcraft and all that played in the living room. We had to call the cops on ourselves. Mm. I remember mom coming in and dancing in the living room, too. It must have been another party. I got caught red-handed. They came home, and somehow I didn't realize they were going to be home. 
Um, You're busted. Yeah, I was busted. Um, meal times, of course, were great. Uh, again, I don't know how she did it. Never was hungry. Never, not once. I remember her hiding her cookies, her fig, fig newtons. Yeah, fig newtons. Whatever cookie was her favorite, and uh, she hid them in the laundry room. Being the youngest of eighteen, uh, what's it like? Well, I don't know any different. Um, you know, it makes me think of mom. It made a comment once: "With big numbers comes great joy, but also great sorrow." Mm-hmm. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. And as we age, whether with our siblings, them, our own children, it just it's part of life. You can't get around it. Right. And that is true. So true. I don't know how it would have shaped me. I don't know how it shaped me raising my kids. I paid more. I paid attention to my children. <laughs> I tried to be there for them, mm-hmm. and uh, which mom, to no fault of hers, she couldn't. Right. And I remember being thinking. It wasn't until I had my first child that I even thought, oh my God, okay, I kind of get this now. Um, because for years as a teenager, I hated mother. Of course. I literally hated her. And I was so grateful that I had this epiphany and that I actually got more years with her loving her. Because mm-hmm. that doesn't always happen either. No. She could have passed and that would have never happened for me. So true. So that was a gift for me because she was funny and she did care. And it just came over me one day that we all can only do the best we can. And, and she did. And it was so freeing for me to let that go. And then how about when she read your diary? Oh, yeah. That was the best line. I can't remember what. You can call me a... Oh, you can call me a bitch, but never boring. Yes. Yeah. So I guess you wrote in your yeah. diary, Mom, Mom is such a bitch. And she read it. And then at the dinner table, she said, yeah. well, yeah. Bridget says I'm a bitch. Well, just don't call me boring. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could not call her boring. No, she was never boring. No. No, but she was uh, also very fun. Oh, my God. She was hysterical. I remember hysterical. sitting next to her uh, as an organist at Sacred Heart <gasps> St. Owens. I'd have to go with her. I was four, three, four, five. She was just a little girl. You know, and even, again, the only thing that's ever come up as me being the youngest was when mom was sick. Hmm. And I'd be with her. And she'd say, call Mary. I'm like, mom, we got to go to the hospital. Okay, call Mary. I'm like, I can take you. I was her, because I was her medical person. Well, no, and she didn't want that for me. Margaret kept saying she doesn't want you to. She didn't want to burden you. How was you? Do you think uh, our Catholic indoctrination has influenced you? Well, obviously it has. I didn't realize it until I was in a relationship with somebody who had absolutely no faith. And then it dawned on me how much mine means to me. Again, uh, as faithful as they were, they knew things were going on in the church, but it was but it was taking a toll on mother. Right. Oh, it really did. I know it did. The patriarchal, she yeah. had a lot of resentment at the end. Oh, and, and she had every right to mm-hmm. um, But I think she was seeing the writing on the wall, and she couldn't just let it go anymore. No. It was too devastating to her, Yeah, as it should be. Yeah. Dad, on the other hand, I don't know. I think he just kept writing on it. But you can't pray yourself out of those situations. Fascinating. I don't even know how to explain that. They were so Catholic, but they were liberal Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our siblings might not be happy with that. But I think they know that. Certainly mother was and dad. Dad read all these contemporary, uh, more, you know, Absolutely. Catholic publications. and But it's almost like we can't help but be Catholic. It's who we are. It's Absolutely. like 
just who we are. I think one thing about is how the the humor. I think even uh, watching other families that our family we do know how to have fun, we do know how to tease, mm-hmm. and and but, but it's not mean. No, it's it's fun, and we always uh, like. Mm-hmm. It would have uh, Patrick would go for you, Birdie, and yeah. then you're the tornado, and yeah. Um, Birdie's got a nickname. Oh yeah, Wormy. Yeah, go figure. All my siblings influenced me, whether it be brother or sister, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, being the youngest for sure. Margaret, of course, being the oldest. John, uh, he was out before I was, you know, living in the house. I mean, you know, born. Uh, Paul, of course, I remember Paul and his children around a lot. Jim, of course, and the kids. Uh, Brian, just loving and fun. Kathy and Vincent, precious. Chris is more like a father figure, always watching over me. I could go to him for anything, like Joe, money, anything. And I did. <laughs> and they did help me out. You know, what do you need? I said, I need $500 to Christopher. And what do you need it for? I didn't want to go back to Marion. I was suffering in the public school. And he handed me $500 in cash. I said, wow. here you go. Wow. So I enrolled myself. No wow, Bridget, I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. I said it was junior, my junior year, second semester going to start. And I said, I, I can't. I don't have $500. But I'm drowning in the public school. And I, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to live if I don't get out of this situation. And he said, here it is. Of course, you know, you and Joe, huge parts of my life. Uh, you were home, obviously. Teresa, sleeping in the same bed. Joe and his boxing and being outrageous and just a dear. Love him to death to this day. Very close. Again, I, most all of you. There isn't a person I don't know that I could, if I got into trouble, I know if I called, they would be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. In a heartbeat. Yeah, and, we, and our life did revolve literally around the liturgical calendar. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Don't forget to check out our accompanying photo gallery at oneof18notjustanumber.com. In our next episode, Silver and a Heart of Gold, we will celebrate our parents' 25th wedding anniversary and honor the unspeakable loss of our brother James Patrick's wife, Eleanor. <laughs>